We will be in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we will be in verses 27 through 30 this morning, finishing off the first chapter. What does it take to be a good citizen? We live in the United States of America. How do we consider good citizenship here? Most of the time, as we think of that, a uh, good citizen is generally someone who is considered to be somewhat patriotic, someone who pays their taxes, they obey the laws of the land, they're productive or a positive contributor to society and uh, through either through their work or social work, social good. And they stand up for what is right. If we see that there is something wrong, we step in and seek to correct the situation. Someone who inhabits these qualities will likely be considered a good citizen by most people. But what does it take to be a good citizen of heaven? Paul speaks of being a citizen of heaven in Philippians chapter 3, and we'll get there someday. <laughs> but as we think of this question here and now, what does it take to be a good citizen of heaven? And what are the implications of this concept of if we are to consider ourselves as citizens of heaven, but we're living out our lives here on this earth, here and now, what are the implications for how we live here in light of the fact that our citizenship is in heaven? Well, that is the question that we are going to examine here today. As we learned last week, Paul spent... His life, he believed to honor Christ, whether that meant living or dying. In life or in death, Paul sought to honor his Lord. And so now as we come to this passage of Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, Paul is going to instruct us and tell us that, that we are called to live as good citizens of heaven by living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we ask the question, okay, well, what does such a life look like? This is how he wants us to live. What does that look like? It is a life that is marked by harmony, gospel proclamation, and peace. Let's look at our text this morning. Again, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. I'm reading from the ESV. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or in absence, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. <clears throat> so again, just to remind us of some of the context here, after, after stating that His goal is to honor Christ, whether by life or by death, 
Paul then transitions into his instructions for the church. In this paragraph, it really sets up the rest of the letter. He's going to kind of expand upon these concepts, the concepts of of unity, the concept of, of peace, the concept of striving for the gospel. That's going to be expanded throughout the rest of the letter of the book of Philippians. But here he just introduces these concepts in a, in a short paragraph calling us to strive to live lives worthy of the gospel. And that is the main point of this paragraph. He says in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> that is the main command of the passage. And I'd like us to notice a few things before we get into what it looks like to obey this command. First, he says to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That phrase, manner of life, that original word there refers to living life as a citizen. That's the original word. It is constructed in such a way that it reflects living life as a citizen of either a nation or a city. And again, I mentioned that later in chapter 3, Paul is going to directly say that our citizenship is in heaven. So we could see that that Paul is setting up this entire section of of chapter 1, verse 27, all the way down through into that that portion of chapter 3 when he is identifying what life looks like as a citizen of heaven and how we live that out in our lives lives. So Paul, it's interesting to me that Paul is both a Jew and a Roman citizen, but he is not treated as a countryman by his fellow Jews, and he has been arrested numerous times by the Roman government, and he has not been able to receive a fair trial at the hands of the Roman government. So his earthly citizenship is not really doing him any favors right now. At the time of his writing, he is sitting in prison, awaiting a trial that is ultimately going to cost him his life. Nevertheless, Paul's aim is not to please his earthly ruler, but is to please the King of Kings, the one who has called him out of darkness and into marvelous light, transferred him out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So Paul is identifying that reality and instructing us to also live in like manner, to live lives worthy of the gospel as citizens. That's that's the way the the Christian Standard Bible provides us a translation that I think is actually the most accurate translation of this verse. And it says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this speaks of our conduct. It speaks of how we are to be living our lives, how we conduct ourselves. That's why most translations render it that way. Let your conduct, let your manner of life, it's, it's how we live our lives that reflects who we are living for. If you have the, the King James, it says, let your conversations be worthy of the gospel. And that word conversations, it's just kind of an old-timey way of, of talking about our conduct in life. We we use the word conversation in a different sense today, but that's how it was used back in those days. It's just your manner of life. As you interact with one another, as you carry about your daily tasks, you're rubbing shoulders with people, you're interacting with others, 
Let your conduct, your manner of life, let it reflect your citizenship, which is in heaven. So how we live our lives, it matters. It matters how we live our lives. We do not have the freedom to live however we choose to live within our own hearts and minds. But rather, we must govern ourselves as citizens of heaven, as God's children, in such a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a high calling. It's a high calling, worthy of the gospel of Christ. For being honest, it's kind of an intimidating calling. Even an impossible calling. How are we supposed to do this? Right? In our flesh, in our, in our humanity, we, we can't do this, can we? We can't live lives worthy of the gospel. We're fallen, finite, sinful human beings. Right? This is the whole reason why the gospel of Christ exists in the first place. is because we cannot attain to God. We cannot attain to the righteousness of God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't attain to Him. We can't live lives worthy of the gospel on our own. So how is it that Paul jumps in here and he gives this command, hey, you need to live a life worthy of the gospel when he knows that, that we can't do that on our own? Why is it, how is it that He commands us to live this way? Well, the answer is that even though Paul is, is giving this command to the church, he doesn't, he doesn't expect us to do it on our own. Right? He doesn't expect us to say, okay, this, this is what I need to do, and so I'm just, I'm just going to will myself to do it. He doesn't expect that within us. But rather, he knows that we must We need the grace of Christ. We must be dependent upon the grace of Christ. We are saved by grace, and we are sanctified by grace. And all of our effort in the pursuit of holiness ought to be grace-driven and grace-filled efforts. And that is why Paul says in the opening paragraph of this letter, if we were to go back to chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Paul says that God is the one who has worked within you. Christ has created this new life within you. You are a new creation in Christ. He says he's going to complete that within you. He's going to continue that work inside of you. And later on in, in chapter 2, he is going to say that, that though we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 13, it says that it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. So Paul says, yeah, you... You need to live lives worthy of the gospel. That's how you're called to live. This is what you must be striving for in your life. You don't have to do it alone. This doesn't have to be something that you're just willing yourself to do. But rather, we need the grace of God within our lives. 
So while this, this might seem like a daunting task, Paul does not expect us to labor in our own. In fact, in the book of, of Colossians, Paul even writes about how he labors, he works hard, but he does so in the strength that Christ provides. In his book, The Discipline of Grace, Jerry Bridges, who, by the way, if, if you've never read a book by Jerry Bridges, I can recommend just about any book that he has ever written. He is a phenomenal author, one of my favorite authors writing about how we live the Christian life. Phenomenal writer that encourages us and and calls us to strive for holiness, but also recognizing the need for the gospel of of grace within us to accomplish that. He wrote a book called The Discipline of Grace. And he writes about how pursuing holiness in our own strength, it will either lead to self-righteousness, where we think, oh yes, I am holy now. I have, I have attained to this measure of, of righteousness in my life. Look at me. Right? We can begin to view ourselves as holier than someone else. At least I'm not like that other person. Right? That's self-righteousness. Striving for holiness in our own strength will either lead to self-righteousness or to self-pity when we discover the sinfulness of our own hearts. And we discover, I'm trying and I'm trying, but it's, it's not happening. I've tried, but I can't seem to turn my eyes away from that which I shouldn't be looking at. I, I try, but, but I can't seem to, to keep my anger in check. I've tried, but I, but I can't just seem to overcome this, this sin in my life. We struggle with this. And so it just leads us to a place of self-pity, doubting our own salvation even in the midst of things. That's what can result if we strive in our own strength. Without the grace of Christ within our lives, we are doomed to fail. But Jerry Bridges, he goes on to write about the the necessity of needing grace within our lives. And how we must strive. We we must be careful not to to strive and labor in our own strength, but on the flip side, if we fail to pursue holiness at all, we will descend into worldliness and will bring a reproach upon the name of Christ. And so we must find the balance in between these things. We must find the balance between striving in our own strength and, and failing to strive at all. And Paul does not think that we are to labor in our own strength, but he does give us this command. As citizens of heaven, live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he challenges us. Worthy living requires both effort and grace, or better, a grace-filled effort. Worthy living requires both effort and grace, or better, a grace-filled effort. Well, if we are going to be pursuing this, what is it that Paul thinks that this should produce within our lives? What does this look like? Well, Paul gives us three portraits of such a life. He says it is a life lived in harmony within the church. A life that spreads the gospel outside of the church and a life lived with inner peace within our own hearts. So first notice, uh, worthy lives stand in harmony. 
worthy lives stand in harmony. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that, that's a purpose clause, this is what the intended result is supposed to be, so that whether I, I come to see you or I'm absent, all right, Paul, again, as he, we go back a few verses, he says, I seek to honor Christ either by my life or by death. He doesn't know what the outcome of his life is going to be. He doesn't know the outcome of his trial. He hopes to see the Philippians again, but he doesn't know if that's going to be a reality. But he charges the Philippians, say, whether I come to you or not, this is what I want your life to look like. This is the end result. This is what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. Whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm in one spirit. Paul says that this is, this is what he hopes to hear about in the lives of the Philippians. Whether he's there or not. Right? This, is, this is what they're to be striving for regardless of Paul's presence. You know, I'm a bivocational pastor. I, I do electrical work on the side to help pay the bills. And I used to work full-time, and, and during my days as a full-time electrician, there was a, it was not uncommon for me to be working in a house doing finish work. I'm putting plugs and switches, hanging lights, getting the power on, making everything light up, all those things. It was very common that I'd be working in the house at the same time as other trades. And there was, you know, familiar faces that we would continue to see on an ongoing basis. Well, there was one crew from a different trade in particular that we would cross paths with with quite often. We would see them frequently. And these were individuals that were not particularly hardworking individuals. It would be more common to enter a room and see them sitting on a bucket looking at their phone than actually working on whatever it is that they were supposed to be accomplishing. So they, that, that was just common to see them doing those things. Well, one day, it just so happened that they were engaged with a particular house that having problems in a particular area, and so their boss needed to come in and help them sort out whatever it was that they were struggling with. And he came, and, and he was working on things. And let me tell you something. It was remarkable to see the change in these workers' lives. They suddenly went from individuals that were not hard workers at all to being amazingly efficient and fast and hardworking individuals getting things done in record time while the boss was present. There was a remarkable change that happened within them. Well, the boss eventually left, leaving them to tie up the loose ends in the, ends in the house after they got the one problem issue sorted out. And you can probably guess what happened. It was back to the bucket. So That's just the way things went. They only worked hard when they were being watched, when their supervisor was present with them. Reminds me of Colossians chapter 2, verses 22 and following. It says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Well, these guys were not guys who were living lives that way. They were working as, as eye-pleasers, as people-pleasers, seeking to work by way of eye-service. 
But Paul says, no. No, you're not to live this way. You're not to be engaged in life only when your supervisors are present. Now, whether I am with you or whether I am absent, this is the manner of life that ought to be present within your lives. This is how you ought to be conducting yourselves. And the first is the issue of, of harmony. Worthy lives live in harmony. The theme of unity in Christ is going to come up a few times within this book, and as we transition in chapter 2, we're going to see that very, very clearly all the more. And it's a theme that, that Paul has to address numerous times in many books. 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Romans, Colossians, the pastoral epistles. He continually has to come back to this issue that we are to live lives in unity with one another, striving together in harmony. James writes in James chapter 4, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your, that your passions are at war within you? So we see that this, this issue of, of conflict within the church, it's not something that's unique to our day and age. Uh, this is something that's been going, even, even to the very beginning of the church, we see that these conflicts were present. And James says that they are a result of our own pride. Our own selfishness brings these things about. You know, it'd be easier to live in harmony if you would just agree with me. Right? That's, that's the mindset that we so often have. You know, clearly I'm right, and you just need to agree with what it is that, that I'm saying here. It's the mindset that is so easy for us to have. I'm not wrong, therefore you must change. But Paul says, no, we need to strive for unity. He says, standing firm in one spirit. This unity that we strive for comes in the context of standing firm together. You know, Paul is speaking to a suffering church a church that has been persecuted for the faith. Paul himself is in jail, suffering on account of the gospel of Christ. And he says to them, hey, hey we need to live in harmony with one another. We must stand firm together. There are, there are countless pressures from the world coming against the church. Right? We, we feel that even in our day and age. The world delights to see Christians infighting. The world gloats when sin is discovered within the Christian community. And right now, even as we stand and sit here together today, there is pressure from the world for the church to embrace godless ideologies, to abandon the truth of God's Word, to set aside issues of inerrancy in favor of whatever agenda is present in the day today. Issues of critical race theory, Egalitarianism, feminism, homosexuality. These things are, are being pressed against the church in our day today. These things are contrary to what the Word of God has to say. We are threatened by these things. It threatens our unity. Because as different churches try to figure out how we respond to these things, if we're going to capitulate to the culture, or if we're going to stand for biblical truth... There is opportunity for division. And there's opportunity for our unity to be threatened. Inside of the church, issues of, of sin, false teaching, apostasy, or even just simple disagreements over trivial matters, they threaten our unity when we let our pride 
get in the way. Disagreements over conscience matters or how funds ought to be allocated within the church or even minor matters of theology. These all things can be fertile ground for the seeds of disunity to grow. So we need to be on the alert. We need to be on alert against these things, aware that anything can be causing disunity within the church. The question can be asked, well, well, how is it that we are to know when an issue is worth dividing over or not? Because there are times when we ought to divide, right? Right? The, The Scriptures never call us to unity at the expense of biblical truth. There are, there are plenty of passages of Scripture that call us to separate from those who teach contrary to the Word of God. But how are we to know when we are, are to divide and when we ought to stand united even in the midst of potential disagreements? Well, clearly we need God's wisdom for this task. We need to be humble. We need to be before, on our knees before God in prayer. But in order to help us think through these things, there's a, a resource that was developed with, in connection with a college classmate and myself. We developed a chart that just kind of helps us think through these things. It's a resource. There's actually a bunch of printouts of them on the back table. Feel free to pick one of those up on your way out today. But it's just a chart to help us think through how we are to evaluate matters of, of theology, matters of practice, matters of conscience issues within our lives, and when we ought to strive for unity and when we ought to divide from one another. It's, it's a helpful resource to kind of get the conversation going on those matters. So I encourage you, if that's of, of use to you, you can pick one of those up today. But we are called to stand for biblical truth and to not be compromising on those things. But we are also called that within the church to stand united it together, to not let the pressures of the world divide us, to not let issues of, of sin within the church to divide us, but we're to repent of sin and to remain faithful to the Scriptures and faithful to our Lord and faithful to one another. So a life that is lived worthy of the gospel stands in harmony with each other within the church. Second, worthy lives live for the gospel. Worthy lives live for the gospel. He goes on to say, whether I'm with you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm side by side for the faith of the gospel. So after talking about what the Christian community should look like on the inside, we are to be united with one another, Paul then turns his attention to how we deal with those on the outside of the church. How we view and how we interact those on the outside. He says, with one mind, we strive side by side for the gospel. The idea here is that we are to be united in purpose. With one mind, that's what that idea communicates. United in purpose. Working together, striving side by side. That's the the concept of of unity and purpose. Working for the same goal, the same aim, the same purpose. 
and it is for the faith of the gospel. And this refers, of course, to the idea of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and proclaim the gospel, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is our calling. Those who seek to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ will, you, will be united in mind and purpose to proclaim that same gospel for which we are living. The gospel of Christ. Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 3 that this is why Jesus Christ has not yet returned. After explaining the concept of the day of the Lord, that Jesus Christ is most certainly going to return one day, Peter says that we are to regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation. He says, God is being patient right now. Christ has not yet returned because there are more that need to hear the gospel of Christ, believe, and follow after Him. So that is why we are here to proclaim the gospel of Christ. You know, a few weeks ago, I was... I was reading a Facebook post in a, in a Facebook group that I'm a part of. This person was, was writing and he was arguing for this concept that, that we are not all called to be those who share our faith with others and that that responsibility is, is only a select few people within the church and leaders within the church and they are the ones that are responsible to proclaim the gospel. But everybody else, no, we just, we just live our lives as, as we go about our days and we just live our lives. That's the concept that they were arguing for, that, that gospel proclamation was to rest solely on the shoulders of specific individuals within the church that God had uniquely gifted for that purpose. And I reject that idea. I do not believe that that is a biblical concept. I do not believe that can be substantiated from the pages of Scripture. Paul did not address this letter to just a few individuals within the church, but to the church as a whole. Paul wrote, furthermore, the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, and he wrote about how we all have the ministry of reconciliation, about how we are to be working with others and to be bringing them to Christ. Peter again wrote how we should always be ready to give a defense for the hope of the gospel that lies within us. And again, I mentioned that passage in Second Peter, when we're to regard the patience of the Lord as an opportunity for salvation. This is not something that is to be carried out just by a few select individuals within the church. This is the responsibility of the whole Christian community as a whole, all of us as individuals and as, as a church body together. We are to proclaim the gospel of Christ. As a pastor of this church, I am called with specific responsibilities in my life. Second Timothy chapter 4 says that I am to, to preach the Word. By God's grace, that is what I do here each, morning, each Sunday morning. That same passage also goes on to say that I'm to do the work of an evangelist. So I am to be engaged in gospel proclamation. But Ephesians 4 says that the leaders within the church are also to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It is the responsibility of the leadership of the church to be equipping the people of the church to be carrying out the ministry of the church. 
And so we are all called to be God's ambassadors, right? We're citizens of heaven, but we are ambassadors of that heaven. We are ambassadors of God as we live out our lives here on earth, this earth. Think of this church as, as the consulates, the embassy of the heavenly kingdom. And as we gather here together, we are being instructed by the king. And then we go out into the world as his ambassadors, proclaiming the gospel of Christ as citizens of heaven. And that is why we have this, these banners that hang in front of us each week. And this isn't just some statement that just sounds nice and, hey, it has pretty banners, so, hey, it's, it's just nice. That actually serves a purpose for us. This is how we are to be living our lives. It's to be part and parcel of who we are, that we exist to glorify God as we proclaim Christ, that every individual in our reach might hear, believe, and follow Him. We are all called to be ambassadors of Christ. This is why we are here. And if this is absent in the life of a church, that church is not going to exist for very long. That church will eventually die out if we are not faithful in proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Christ. Furthermore, if we are not active in proclaiming the gospel, Paul says to live a life worthy of the gospel, and this is what it looks like, that we strive for the faith of the gospel of Christ. If we're not doing that, are we living lives worthy of the gospel? That is what we need to consider. Each Saturday, uh, we go down to the Jeffersonville Farmer's Market, Big Four Station down there at the bridge. We have a canopy that keeps the sun off of our backs, off our necks. Uh, we have a fan that is, provides us breeze. We have signs for advertising. Hey, free Bibles, free water, prayer station will pray for you. And it's just a very, very simple and easy way to engage our community with the gospel in a way that is a practical service to them, providing them refreshments or providing them with water on a hot summer day, praying for them, whatever, whatever is on their heart, whatever needs that they might have. But it's a very simple and easy way to engage with people in the gospel of Christ. And with every conversation, we give out a gospel tract. We seek to find out if they have a church home. We seek to make sure that they understand the gospel. And I invite you to come and, and spend a Saturday morning with us. This Yesterday morning, we weren't able to go down. The, the storms were uh, inclement weather and all that. We, we weren't able to get down there. But each Saturday, when the sun is shining, when we're not having storms, we do go down. And we seek to be a, a gospel presence there. And I invite you to come and be a part of that. Just Even if it's not to talk, even if it's just to come and just see what it's like. Come for an hour. Say, okay, I'm, I just want to observe and see what this looks like. I'm not asking you to commit your whole Saturday. I'm not asking you to commit every Saturday. Just, just consider if you would just come down and just see what it's like to be a part of that. On the back table, we also have gospel tracts that you can pick up and take with you and that you can give to people. You can leave uh, in different locations around as you're going about, going about your day that, that explains the gospel of Christ in a clear and concise manner. There are many simple yet effective ways to be living worthy of the gospel in this way. 
striving for the faith, for its advancement and growth. And if we are to live lives worthy of the gospel, we must strive for this same purpose, this same goal, having this same mind, the advancement of the gospel. I just want to say one more thing before we move on to this last point. You know, what I just said has the opportunity to sound like a guilt trip. You know, like, oh, if you're not spreading the gospel, you know, you've you got to be doing this. And I want you to know that that's not my goal. My goal isn't to bring a guilt trip upon your lives today. Now, it could be that the Holy Spirit is pricking you, and, and you need to be sensitive to that. And I don't want to take away from the Holy Spirit's work within your heart today, but I want you to know that it's not my goal to bring a guilt trip upon you, because guilt is a terrible motivator for our Christian lives. As soon as the feeling is gone, so too our behavior leaves with it. So guilt is not a good motivator within our Christian lives. We are to be motivated by love. We're to be motivated by grace. Right, we just, I spent time talking about at the outset of this message that as we're called to live lives worthy of the gospel, we can't do that on our own, right? We need the grace of God within our lives, including in this area. We need the grace of God to help us as we seek to share our faith with others. It's a grace-filled effort. We can't do it on our own. We need God to work within us. So we need to take with us the grace of God in each of our evangelistic encounters. But a life worthy of the gospel is marked by this characteristic, that we strive together with the same purpose for the advancement of the gospel. Finally, worthy lives live fearlessly. Verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul says that you're to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, for its advancement and growth. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. The third characteristic of a life that is worthy of the gospel is fearlessness in the face of opposition. Worthy lives live fearlessly. I find this a remarkable thing here because the church, again, was a church that was suffering. Paul himself, again, was in prison. If there was an opportunity for intimidation within their own hearts and lives, it was right then and there in front of them. But Paul says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You do not need to be frightened by your opponents. Say, well, why not? They're killing us here, Paul. They're literally imprisoning us and trying to take our lives. Why would we not be afraid of them? I'm reminded of when Jesus was sending out his disciples and he instructed them not to fear. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hebrews quotes a passage from the Psalms when it says, this is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, so, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
And Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, that who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or, or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he goes on to say that I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And our Lord Himself said that I will never leave you nor forsake you. So even in the midst of a world when we are faced with opposition, even when the, when the church at that time was being persecuted, killed, suffering, Paul himself was in jail. Paul says, you don't have to be afraid of them. The worst thing that they can do is kill you. And that's not so bad. He says, I've gained Christ, right? To die is, is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. The worst thing that they can do is kill you. We don't have to fear that. We don't have to be afraid of those things. And right now, we have, we have an opportunity to be afraid today. We do. There's shifting tides in our culture. It's not hard to figure out that our culture is rapidly moving in a direction that is increasingly hostile against Christianity, hostile against the Lord, hostile against biblical truth. That has been going on for some time, and it seems as right now that we are accelerating in that direction. It's not difficult to envision that, that someday we could face different levels of persecution, even within our own lifetime. And it might start slow, or it might develop rather quickly. We might simply lose certain things, like our tax-exempt status as a church, or it could quickly move to other things like restrictions upon free speech. It could be that pastors will be imprisoned if they speak out against things that the Scriptures speak on. Things like homosexuality. Right now in Europe, it is illegal to preach biblical truth in some places in Europe about the issue of homosexuality. Right now, there is a pastor who has been imprisoned just this last week in Canada for simply gathering his church together on a Sunday morning. Now, these things are, are present within our world, and it's, it's not difficult to envision that violence may be headed our way as God's people. And we have a choice to make. Will, be, will we be afraid of those things? Or will we rest in these promises of God? He will, that Christ will never leave us or forsake us. And what can man do to me? Yeah, they can kill me. They can throw me in jail. They can separate me from my family. Believe me, that is, that is not a pleasant thought. But I don't need to be afraid. Because my Lord is with me. And He will never leave me or forsake me. So I do not have to fear the things of this world. Though these things have the opportunity to disrupt our way of life, and it will be painful to endure, I do not have to be afraid. We can stand with confidence before God. And, and when we do so, Paul says this is a sure sign for us. 
He says this, this inner peace that passes all understanding, even in the face of severe opposition, this persecution is a, it is a clear sign that we belong to God. That's what he says right here in this passage. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Paul says that those who oppose God's people, it is a clear sign that they are on their way to a Christless eternity if they do not repent of their sin and trust in Christ themselves. He says the fact that you are having this fearlessness, that you can have this peace even in the face of this opposition, that itself is a testimony to the very faith that is within you and that you belong to God. So we do not have to fear. And this, this fearlessness stands as affirmation of our faith. And he goes on to say, you know, if, if we ask the question, okay, how can we live this fearless faith? Why should we stand this firm and unflappable in the face of severe opposition? And he gives us verse 29. For or because it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul says that you can remain steadfast. You can endure whatever is coming your way, whatever hardships you're about to endure, whatever it is that you will face. You can endure this fearlessly because what you're experiencing is actually a gift from God. You might say, well, that's not a gift I want. You know, if this is your idea of a gift, Lord, please keep it. Yeah, we don't, we don't choose the hardships that we endure in this life, right? Paul didn't choose his imprisonment. The Philippian church didn't choose what they're enduring. But nevertheless, Paul says that it is a gift from God. That it is a gift and that God is using that within your life to, to strength, strengthen you, to sanctify you, and He is using you as a testimony to those around you. God is at work even in our suffering. Though the road is hard, we must embrace that reality. And Paul, uh, Peter rather wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to close with this. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 13 through 16, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory in that name. We can rejoice even in suffering for Christ because it is what God is doing within our hearts and within our lives. And that it, is, it brings within us that confidence and that assurance that we are going to be with Him in glory. And the Spirit of God rests upon you. So Paul wanted us to live as good citizens of heaven, lives worthy of the gospel. 
This cannot be done in our own strength, but rather we need the grace of God to work within us. But through grace-filled effort, we strive for holiness. In a life that is worthy of the gospel, we'll have at least these three characteristics. Lives that stand in harmony within the Christian community. Lives that strive for the advancement of the gospel outside. And lives that live fearlessly, at peace, even in the face of opposition. May God grant that these things be true in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that though we are called to live lives worthy of the gospel, we don't have to do that in our own strength. We can't. We will fall. But through the grace of Christ that works within us, Lord, through grace-filled efforts, you will be working these things in our hearts and our lives, and I pray that that would be so in us today. Give us the grace that we need, Lord. Help us to be dependent upon your grace. Help us to understand what that looks like in our lives to be resting upon the grace of Christ. And as we live our lives, may we be good citizens of your kingdom, Lord. Good citizens of heaven. I pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.